you ever had one of those moments where someone just knows you? You know the ones when, when you're, kind of, you're there and someone says something and they just, they just know you really well. Uh, this week we're out with, with, for dinner with some friends and, um, and I went to ask uh, my friend a question and he just answered my question before I even asked it. I'm like, that was freaky, right? There are moments where you just, where you just know people and they know you and it's this great kind of relationship. Have you, have you had those moments? Um, Sarah and I, I'm married to Sarah, my wife, right? We occasionally have those moments where Sarah just knows me, which is great. Since we've been married for 14 years, you're like, okay, it's a, it's a good thing. You'd hope she knows me a bit. And there are times she just knows what's going on in my head and she's got a, a great view of what's been happening. And there are other times when she knows what's going on in my head, but I don't want her to. You ever had friends like that? Where they kind of pull you up on stuff and go, hey, is it just that you're a little bit jealous here? And you're like, shut up. No. <laughs> Oh, do you know anyway? Are you inside my head? You're like, yes, she is. Get away. Uh, there are times in life where we have people who just know us. They, they, they kind of get us. And what I want to say is that Ecclesiastes is a book like that. When you read through Ecclesiastes, you kind of, it's a book that's like, hey, get out of my head. How, how, do you, how do you know this? It has a view on life. It, has a, it was a way of speaking that you're just like, yeah, that makes sense. It's a book that expresses... Um, Really, I think what life is like so helpfully. And so as we come to it tonight, as we hear through it, I think it's an exciting time. It's like a wise old friend that, that knows you and that says things that resonate with you. But the, the problem is that sometimes the things that it says kind of are, are a little bit, well, ugly. <laughs> See, Ecclesiastes is, is a book that's kind of like a mirror. As you hold it up, as you read what it has to say, it, it clarifies for us life and, and meaning and, and, and what goes on in the world and, and shows us really our view of the world. It's got lots to say on that. But it also shows us some of the things that we hold that don't quite make sense. It critiques us. And the picture we sometimes see of our view of the world or ourselves in this mirror called Ecclesiastes, I've got to admit, sometimes gets a little ugly. But what excites me about this book is that it's so relevant. For a piece of writing written over 3,000 years ago to be so relevant to me and to my world today just shows us that not much has changed in this world. We think we've had great progress. We think we've, we've come so far and we're not like those people of old who were so rudimentary and agricultural and kind of simpletons. Yet you open up this 3,000 old piece of literature that's in front of us tonight and you're like, Wow. It could have been written, written last week. And what it shows us is that we all still run after the same goals, the same things. Humanity hasn't changed that much. And what this book is, is, is a wonderful and profound and phenomenally relevant mirror. And what it's going to do for us is a little bit different than other parts of the Bible. As we come along to this book, what it does, it starts to kind of help us to question and to look at all our hopes, our ambitions, our, our dreams in life and show us really that we're looking at the world through rose-colored glasses. That's the outcome of, of Ecclesiastes. As you come along, you're like, far out. Because as it holds up the mirror, it shows you a man who has... Similar hopes and dreams to most of us, but a man who's achieved far more than any of us in this room ever will. 
Shows us a man who has done everything you've ever wanted to do. He has everything you've ever wanted to have. He's seen everything you've ever wanted to see. And he knows everything you've ever wanted to know and more. In fact, he's done it all ten times better than any of us ever will. And what he does is he takes those dreams, those hopes, those aspirations, the things that we we long for, the joys and pleasures of life, and he does them so much better than us, it makes you kind of feel a little bit insignificant, inadequate. And then he says, since I've got to the top, let me tell you what they're like. Meaningless. He smashes them. He smashes our dreams and our hopes and And leaves you kind of wondering throughout this book, what is life about? The book of Ecclesiastes is a phenomenal mirror on us. Have you ever felt in life like you just can't get anywhere? You ever felt that that kind of frustration when life just feels like a a big narrative of swings and roundabouts and you're trying to get somewhere but you never achieve what you want to achieve and you, you want to feel something but you never quite feel it. And Ecclesiastes can stand with us at this point. As we look in the mirror, as we hear this, this picture of a man and see this picture of a man that kind of critiques our worldview and stand back and go, yeah, I agree. The book of Ecclesiastes will do three things for us, I think. Number one, it will show us that we should stand back. And we should ask ourselves the question, why am I here? It's number one. We should ask the question, why am I here? Number two, it's going to show us in a profound way the emptiness of the things that we seek. That if this is all there is to life, what we see and hear and feel, if life is secular, then life is phenomenally empty. And thirdly, it'll draw us towards an answer. It doesn't just leave you hanging. Uh, I've got to warn you, you'll feel a little bit depressed throughout the book of Ecclesiastes as you hear the kind of repeated chain, um, frames that, refrains that come through. But it does leave you with a solution, or at least the shape of a solution, an answer that actually truly satisfies life and makes sense of, of the world that we live in. So what I want to do now is get into this book, have a look at the first chapter and see what this mirror has to say to us. Chapter 1, verse 1. The words of the teacher, son of David, king in Jerusalem. Ecclesiastes is written from this one called the teacher, claimed that he's the the son of David, king in Jerusalem. It's it's written from the viewpoint of Solomon, who was David's son. As you read through the, the, the accounts of the history of Israel, you see that David was this king that God chose. He was a great king. We, we saw that if you were here for, for our one Samuel series. He was the king after God's own heart. He was the king that God loved and who led God's people well. And there was a promise given to him that, that a son of his would rule forever. That this son would build God a permanent place amongst God's people who'd build a temple. Uh, and we see as the narrative of kind of Israel's history unfolds that that son looks like Solomon. Solomon has all the wisdom of, of everyone, really. He's just the, the wisest man, really, that the world has ever seen. He's got all the wealth. This guy is richer than anyone you can imagine. He, just all the kind of kingdom. He's just got all these resources at his hands. He has money. He has pleasure. He has achievement. He has 700 wives and 300 concubines. He, he's got relationships, more relationships than anyone could ever want. He's got more money than anyone could ever want, more wisdom. The the people from all the kind of neighboring countries come to him for his wisdom. 
This guy's got it all. He's kind of some mixture of Brad Pitt, Bill Gates and Albert Einstein all kind of pulled into one. You're like, man, he's got it all. And so we get now to, to listen and to hear from someone writing from that point of view about what is the meaning of life. But as you look through the book, there's some uncertainty. In fact, people disagree whether Solomon wrote it or someone who was um, passing on Solomon's wisdom. There's a few points where you think, oh, could this be Solomon? Uh, And there's a few little things that make you think that. Either way, it doesn't really matter. It's either Solomon or someone writing with Solomon's wisdom, passing that on to us. Throughout church history, um, there really haven't been, there have been disagreements about why this is part of the Bible, but no real disagreements about if it's part of the Bible. Do you hear the difference? People have been like, oh, why, did, why is it included? Why did Jesus call this part of the Old Testament? But never did he. Uh, it's always been there. And so people say this really is part of God's word to us. It's part of Israel's history that's, that's transferred to us. Why? Well, I think Ecclesiastes 12 at the end of the book helps us to understand the authorship question really well. This is what it says. The sayings are given by one shepherd. Now you can go back later, read that in its context. What it's saying here is that the wisdom of Ecclesiastes comes out of one shepherd. One person looking after the sheep. Who is that? I put it to you, it's not Solomon. He's not the one that was the one shepherd with all the wisdom. In fact, he ended up being quite foolish at the end of his life. Um, It's not some other human author either. Uh, I want to put it to you that the one shepherd is the maker and sustainer of life. The one shepherd is the one who's given the wisdom. The creator of the universe, it's God. And so the book of Ecclesiastes claims that this wisdom comes from the one true shepherd. And so we take it that this wisdom has been passed on to us in this form um, by God through human authors. And so we sit here trying to work out what is it saying to us? Well, that's the question. The question of the book comes in verse 3. And this really, uh, I guess, drives the whole book forward. Have a look at verse 3. What does a man gain for all his efforts that he labors at under the sun? What does man gain for all his efforts that he labors at under the sun? It's, it's the question of life, isn't it? The search for meaning. What's the point of it all? Every single phrase in that sentence is just hugely important for the rest of the book. And we need to understand it. He's saying... What's the point in life? What does a man, what does mankind gain? What does it profit us? What, what's the use of life? What's the use of all my efforts, everything that I do, that I labor at, that I toil at, my time, my energy, my money, who I am, my relationship? What's the use of everything that I do under the sun? And that, those last three words, under the sun, they're even more important than the whole phrase put together. Because under the sun kind of frames the rest of the book. What he's saying is if you can find your view of the world, your viewpoint of everything to just this world and its resources, just the here and now. If you take out God, if you take out religion, take out anything else that might exist beyond what we can see, hear, feel and touch. If you do that, then what's the point of life? As we look at it here, it's really the secular view of life. Have you ever been in um, one of those mazes? You know, you can go to like Puzzle World or um, I don't know what else they're called. Sarah and I, I think it was not long after we were married, um, we, we were um, camping around Tasmania in Australia for kind of 12, 12 nights. 
And we went along to this maze place. I think it was called Puzzle World. I can't remember. It still puzzles me. Um, yeah, thanks for laughing. Um, save me. So, so with it, and they had this maze. Now, you know how sometimes there's these kids' mazes and they're really little and you're like, yeah, whatever, we can do this in three minutes. This was not like that. This maze like had bells you could ring for if you get freaked out because you couldn't get out. It was like some serious maze. Um, and, and you couldn't, it was just, it was large and long and big high, wooden walls everywhere you went and it all looked the same. And I remember being in it and, and trying to work our way through. Um, Sarah and I split up because we're a little bit competitive, trying to see who get out first. And, and I'm kind of frantically running around, running up this way, dead end, running that way, kind of exploring the maze, feeling like, man, I've been here before <laughs> and, and, and trying to get out of it and, and look for the, the best path through and, and what, it, what it's like. Well, that's what Solomon is doing for us. That's what this teacher is, is showing for us. Life lived in the maze. There's, there's no kind of uh, from on high view. Because you know, right, if, if the ideal situation when you're in a maze is just to get up really high and be able to see where it all goes. And like, oh, that's where I need to go, right? It's like if you take that out, if you take out any kind of overarching picture of the meaning of life or, or God or religion, and we just have the maze, what is life like? So the book of Ecclesiastes explores life from that perspective and it calls it life under the sun. Not once in this whole book is God's name of Yahweh used. He's just absent. It's like, how do I make sense of everything without God here? Uh, If I take God out of the equation with no word from anywhere else and I try and explore every nook and cranny of life on the shoulders of the world's most successful man, the world's most rich man, the world's wisest man that we've seen before Jesus. What would it look like if I live that way? How do I get the most out of life with this secular framework? That is what the book is asking. What's the meaning? What do I gain if this is all there is? Then we come to the answer for that question. Interestingly, Uh, The writer gives us the answer before he even asks the question. Look at verse 2. You ready for it? What's the meaning of life? Absolute futility, says the teacher. Absolute futility. Everything is futile. A little bit depressing, isn't it? Like, come on. Surely there's a bit more to life than everything being futile. You're going to start out a book that way. what's, What's he saying? He's saying this. If this is all there is, if the heights that I've been to, if the things that I've explored, the the riches, um, the the wealth, the relationships, the knowledge, if this is all there is, here's my conclusion. Life sucks. It's meaningless. Now, that word meaningless there is is a word that just means a vapor. It's it's vanity. Um, It's like saying it's it's this. Just a breath in the air, a bit of wind blowing around. Life is just nothing. It's here and then it's gone. It's, it's so short. It's unsubstantial. It's frail. It's futile. It has no effect. It's kind of deceitful. There's, there's nothing to it. Have you tried to catch the wind? You're like, so you've got to sail. You can get some, but you can't. That's what life is like, he's saying. Untrustworthy, unsubstantial. No endeavor will in, in itself bring permanent satisfaction. The greatest joys of life are but fleeting nothingness. Glad you came to church tonight. <laughs> You're like, sweet, let's go home and do nothing. <laughs> like, what's the point in it all? It's like a puff of smoke, a vapor in the air. I don't know if you know Bob Dylan. 
I wasn't even kind of around when he was popular. I don't know if he still is. But there was one song that was always stuck in my mind. The answer, my friend, is blowing in the wind. The answer is blowing in the wind. Heard that song? Go and look up the lyrics. Uh, It's kind of like a modern day Ecclesiastes as you read his words. It's like, what's the point of the world if, you know, we can't get rid of guns, we can't get rid of wars, if, if, if the, the earth is still kind of not getting any better? What's the point? The answer is just blowing in the wind. It's just nothing. It's just vapor. It's meaningless. This 3,000-year-old book picks up on a modern take of life. An atheistic worldview. We are what we are. It's very relevant for us today. Between the start and the finish of the book, the teacher will echo these words that it's meaningless 30 times. He's saying it a lot in 12 chapters. <laughs> meaningless. If this is all there is, life is meaningless. Let me show you why. Life is meaningless, number one, because nothing changes. Nothing changes. Look at, look at verse 4. A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises, the sun sets, panting, it returns to its place where it rises. Gusting to the south, turning to the north, turning, turning, goes the wind, and the wind returns in its cycles. All the streams flow into the sea, yet the sea is never full. The streams are flowing to the place and they flow there again, all things are wearisome. Do you see that? Nothing changes. When you look at the world, the sun still rises, the sun still sets. The things that we can do in life, they don't really change much. We're not making that much of an impact. That's pretty obvious. This book was written 3,000 years ago and we've still got the same issues. People come and people go. We live, we die. We live under this rose-colored glasses assumption that will make a difference in the world. Do you even know your great-great-great-great-grandparents' name? So your, your parents, 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 parents. Let's just go, let's just go three levels. Your, your parents, parents, parents. Who knows their first name of their parents, parents, parents? Whoa. <laughs> what about the, their parents, the one before? And the first name, not the last name. It's cheating. Yeah. And they're related to you. You come from them. People come, people go. Generation goes, generation comes, but the earth remains forever. Do you think that made much difference? The world is not getting better. It's getting worse. We haven't made much impact in the world. Global warming is rising. Crime is still there. War, just look at Syria and what's happening over there. Poverty is still amongst us. Do you know we have the resources at the moment to solve poverty? It's not like we need to go and scratch around and find them. We, we produce enough food to feed everyone on the planet. If that already happens, it's fine. But we still have the issue. We haven't been able to make a change. Finally, Jesus said that it would be exactly what would happen. The problem of the poor you will always have amongst you, he says. This teacher here is saying, if you cap the horizon of life to what we see here and now, if, if life under the sun is all there is, then what's the point? It's kind of like life is an exercise bike. You ever see people at the gym, they go and they ride those exercise bikes? 
And now you've got screens and you can watch the Tour de France as you ride them. And you're like, yeah, I'm on the Tour de France. They jump on the bike and they're like, I'm riding. I'm doing, you know, I can know what my heart rate is. I know how far I've run, run, um, ridden, how many, how many calories I've burnt. And they get on that bike and they ride like they're going to be the king of the world. They're going to win the Tour de France, come home with a yellow jersey. And you know what? They get off the bike in the same spot. And they go home and the next day someone else comes and rides the bike. And, you know, it was inconsequential. It didn't go anywhere. Nothing really happened. But people are riding the bike going, yeah, this is awesome. Sure, they might be building up a bit of fitness, but I guarantee you they're going to die at some point. It's, it's like this. It, life is like an exercise bike. You jump on, you ride it for a while, you get off, it's in the same place, nothing changes. It's like swimming. Um, Sarah loves swimming. She's always been a good swimmer, um, and she's just really good at it. I, I, again, we're competitive a little bit, and so when we've, we've been swimming together, we used to race 50-meter 50 50 pool, um, and I don't really like swimming, I'll tell you why in a second. Um, and I can beat her over 50, 50 metres. I've just got enough strength to splash about like some crazy kind of dog swimming uh, through water. It's not graceful at all, but pure muscle gets me to the end about, you know, a metre in front of Sarah. And I'm like <gasps> holding on to the end, the end kind of wall of the pool. Sarah does this flip turn and just keeps the same pace for like a kilometre. And I'm like, how do you do that? I, I can't do it. But the reason why I hate swimming isn't because I lose. This is so frustrating. Like Sarah will come back and go, yeah, I swam 1.2 Ks. She used to swim quite often um, before some of our kids. And I did 1.2 Ks today. It was a great swim in like 20 or 30 minutes or something like that. I don't know what it was. I might, I might have the figures wrong there. And I'm like, Are you, when you got into the pool, right, where did you get out? She goes, the same ladder. I went, so for your 1.2 Ks, you were never more than 50 meters from the point that you got in. How boring is that? Like you just, you didn't actually go anywhere. You got in the pool, you went backwards and forwards, but you got out the same place you got in. What was the point? Like, I think swimming's just useless. It's frustrating. You just get out. At least with cycling, when you're on a real bike, you go somewhere and you've been somewhere. But swimming, you're like, it's 50 meters away. Solomon here, the teacher is saying, that's like life. People come, they jump in the pool, they swim their guts out, they get out at the same place they got in. From the dust you came to the dust you shall return. If this is all there is, says Solomon, life is meaningless because nothing changes. You can't, the pool's still there laughing at you. The exercise bike is still there. The world is still there. You can't make these changes. You know what that means? Whether you live a life of violence, oppression, racism or genocide, or whether you live a, a life of humanitarian concern and compassion, in the end, if this is all there is, it'll mean nothing. Everyone gets in and out of the pool at the same point. From dust you came, to dust you shall return. Well, what, what difference can you make? There's, there's, no, there's no difference. It's, it's meaningless. Everything will be over. The sun will rise, the sun will set, it will come back around. You'll be gone, a distant memory. <laughs> Vapor. If life under the sun is all there is, all is futility, because nothing changes. The second reason that he tells us that all is futility and meaningless is because nothing satisfies. Have a look at verse 8. All things are wearisome. Man is unable to speak. The eye is not satisfied by seeing or the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be and what has been done is what will be done. There is nothing new under the sun. Can one say about anything, look, this is new. It's already existed in the ages before us. There's no remembrance of those who come before and of those who will come after. There'll be also no remembrance by those who follow them. Life is tiring. 
You ever feel tired? You ever feel like, man, I feel like I just keep doing the same old thing every day like it's Groundhog Day. And I just get up again and do the same things. And, you know, it's the same crap life. It's just people change. <laughs> it just is not satisfying. Now, I know it's a little bit bleak. But he's telling us here why. He's like, it's just life is tiring. I've been here. I've done this stuff. He's like, the eye is not satisfied by seeing. Do you find that? That like you've got your mind set on something that you think will be a good gadget or a good thing. It's going to help me in my life. I'll be satisfied when I have this. The latest thing for me was um, a widescreen monitor for my desk. See, if I've got a screen that's ultra wide, I can put two documents next to each other and be able to work on them and on my laptop screen at the same time. I'll be like, I'll be way more productive. Like, this will make my life easier. Sure, it won't make everything go brilliantly, but it'll, it'll be good. And so I've been looking for oh, ages. I had a search saved on Trade Me. I finally found like a secondhand monitor that was still under warranty. Great, good savings. I'm like, this is brilliant. So I buy it, right? And I come home, I set it up, I mount it to the wall. I'm all excited about it. I put it up, oh, that's all right. And then suddenly I notice these things popping up in my email saying ultra, ultra wide screen. You can get a, a curved 34 inch screen that goes all the way around. Imagine that. And suddenly I'm not satisfied what's in front of me. My eyes, they're not satisfied. I want, I want more. I want something better. Do you find that? <laughs> you keep going from one thing to the next to the next, never satisfied with what comes before. The eye is not satisfied by seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. We always want more information. We want to have the knowledge, the more learning to give us more satisfaction. Or maybe our satisfaction comes from hearing words that you're desperate to hear. I love you. My home is now with you. And you just don't hear it. And, and, then, and then maybe you do and you're like, actually, I don't want to be loved by you. <laughs> or you, you, you kind of meet the person of your dreams. They're brilliant. You're like, this is fantastic. You're married to them for two years and you're like, I'm bored. You laugh. Well, you're like, no, that doesn't happen. <laughs> just ask married people. It's pretty much every marriage. Now, it's not a bad thing because you need to keep investing in that. But there's this sense in which we move on. The kind of shine rubs off. I call it compass syndrome for married couples, right? For the woman, everything goes south. And for the guy, we stretch from east to west. Okay. (laughs) Think about that. The ear is not filled. We aren't satisfied with what we hear. What, What has been done is what will be done. There's nothing new under the sun, Sure, we might have sent men to the moon in the last 50, 50 years? 69. Yes, no. 50, yeah, we're just over 50. My math is bad. Um, so we might have sent mankind to the moon. I heard recently, um, just last week when we were away on holidays, I was reading that um, NASA thinks that they'll put a colony of people who live permanently on the face of Mars in the next by, by 2030. Apparently, they've done their research and they've seen with the kind of uh, the, the, the landings that have happened there with a the Mars rover, they've explored extensive parts of Mars, 11 kilometers, in case you're wondering. It's how far the, the rover's been. I'm like, man, I'll go further than my holidays. <laughs> 11 Ks. You're going to move people there and you've only been 11 Ks? Anyway, they've found that in the millions of years past, they think that there has been water on Mars somewhere. And so they see that it will be sustainable at some point to go there, to 3D print the world that they need with the resources they need and start stuff up. Now, maybe it'll happen. Maybe, you know, but we've been seeking new frontiers from the beginning, exploring this world. It's just the scales change. There's nothing new about it. 
looking for new places, new lands. We're living in the newest country on earth. The one that's been discovered the most recently. There's nothing new under the sun. What has been done is what will be done. Sure, some details might change. We think we're so sophisticated because we've got smartphones and we've got the internet. But people before us who didn't have smartphones and the internet, they could remember verbatim, like whole books, quote them to you. They might say we're lazy and fat and we can't kind of understand anything. We've got these, we have to rely on batteries to even get places. What has been done is what, be, what will be done. How do you make sense of this? If this is all we are, if, this, if life is this great exercise, swimming pool. Well, Jacques Monod was a Pulitzer Prize winning French biologist. And his take on our search for meaning from a, from a secular viewpoint, if this life is all there is, is this. He said, and here's a quote on the screen, we are accidentally created by the universe to be conscious of the fact that we're accidents. That's it. We're accidentally created by the universe to be conscious of the fact that we're accidents. Basically, he's saying we're grown-up germs because life under the sun is all there is because the horizon has been lowered to this. This is it. This is the meaning of a life that we live. Our thoughts just become electrochemical field of interchanges. Our, our emotions, our feelings are just some kind of psychic phosphorescence arising out of my genes and my natural kind of... Um, my surroundings of the world around me, the ideas of morals that I had, you know, that some things are noble and good and other things are ugly and wrong. They're just my projection of categories on a senseless and random universe. When I hear a piece of music, I I realize that ultimately any distinction between beauty and ugliness is just an illusion. The only reason that I like this music is just that my nervous system is conditioned to respond to this particular set of sounds by random chance. If we just exist and die, if this life is all there is, then it makes no difference how we live. Nothing changes, no no progress is happening. If all we are is just accidentally created by the universe to be conscious of the fact that we're accidents, there's no difference between music and noise, love and indifference, good and evil. It's just meaningless vapor that says the teacher is life under the sun there's a sense in which the world around us recognizes that futility how many times have you heard people say look at least i'm happy right how many times have you said that i know life might not be going the way i want i might not be achieving what i want to achieve but look at least I'm happy. At least you've got your family. I'm not going to remember you in four generations anyway. But at least I've got them. Well, look at happiness next week. What Solomon's about to do is set up an experiment where he goes through this in great detail over the next eight weeks, exploring each of the areas that we look for value and worth in life. And next week, we'll look at happiness in particular. And he'll kind of explore it for us, run through the maze and try every door and window and show you what it's like. But I want us to notice for a second that that phrase, at least I'm happy, recognizes something that this teacher is saying, that there is a meaninglessness to to life, a sense that the world can't change. See, so many of us recognize that we aren't going anywhere. 
But in terms of achievement and change and satisfaction, that we're not really achieving. And so we say, at least I'm happy. Do you see how we, we, we tip the hat to this fact that the, the world isn't changing? We can't make much of a dent on the world. At least I had a good life. And so what we do is we become like children. <laughs> we resort to playing and building sandcastles on the beach. Life is like getting together a big pile of sand and putting all decorating it round and saying, look, I'm having fun on the beach and I don't care that when I walk away in four hours' time, it's going to be swept away by the next wave and it'll all be gone. At least I had fun. Right? That, that's, that's the world's answer to this secular framework of why are we here? If that's what life is about, if that's what we are here for, it's pretty sad, isn't it? In chapter 3, verse 11, we get a hint that there's actually much, much more to life than playing sandcastles in the sand. He says that God has also put eternity in our hearts. There's this hint that there's something stitched into all of us, a want for satisfaction, a want for more. Are you satisfied with your life? Are you satisfied that we live, we die, and that's it? It gets washed away? Deep down, I think no one is. We may pretend we are, but we want value and meaning. We want relationships. We want people. And the Bible's claim is that that desire and that want is because that's how God made you. Creation, yourselves, have stitched into us this this desire for, for more. We were made for more than just electrochemical interchanges. That desire and that meaning you have in you is because there's something in you that, that says this isn't good enough, playing sandcastles in the sand. It's a great big flag that God has created that says, don't settle for second best. If you're thirsty, if you want to drink, if you want satisfaction, don't drink sand. Like it's not... But that's what we do. Well, what's the conclusion? What's the conclusion in this little section of this kind of depressing view of life? (laughs) We'll have lots to kind of see over the next eight weeks. But I think one of the reasons that we fail to live life to the full right now is because we, we fail to live life with a proper regard to the real shape of life. Now, bear with me for a second, because I think this is, this is key. We fail to live life to the full now because we live life without a proper regard for the real shape of life. In other words, we think one thing, but it turns out in reality that the way we think about the world is actually very different. That the world is very different. Let me kind of try and explain it to you. Before Sarah and I had children, I had this view that kids were awesome. I still have that view. Kids are awesome. It's okay. Don't need to call anyone and be like, quick. Um, but, you know, you think, you think about childbirth. You see it on the movies. Like you've seen it all. Might have even seen come, some life show and you've seen a live birth. Um, I've said before, but yeah, anyway, I'm not even going to go there. Um, and so you think that, sure, at birth, there's probably going to be a bit of pain, a bit of hand squeezing, maybe a bit of yelling. And that'll be fine, and then the baby will come out, it'll be all nice, and it might cry a little bit, then you feed it, and it sleeps, and like, it's just this lovely, happy, glowing life with a baby. I remember Nathaniel, our first, our first child, Sarah was in labor with Nathaniel for 24 hours. 
with contractions a minute apart. That's a whole day. She didn't sleep. Look, I'm like, what is this? Is this normal? They're like, yep. I'm like, whoa, my view of reality was very different. I had this nice view of having kids. Man, I want to rethink this now. And I remember the baby coming out. He, he wouldn't come. There are lots of issues with Nathaniel, um, probably because I'm his dad, but you know, there are other reasons as well. But he, he was delivered by forceps. Now, if you're doing nursing or you kind of know what that is, and maybe you're a forcep baby, I was freaked out. They've got these like massive kind of salad servers on his head, like latched on. And then the doctor, not to freak too many people out, just puts her foot on the bed and is like hanging off, pulling him out. I'm like, his head is going to come off. This isn't what I was expecting. Then he comes out and he looks like a cone head. I'm like, what is that? That's not my son. It's kind of like this little, I'm like, yeah, and they like whip him away and they kind of clean him up and then they go, here you go, he's your son. And they're like, oh, you got a score of nine. I'm like, what does that mean? looks weird to me. Nine out of 10 is not bad, but just my view of what childbirth and having children will be like turned out to be very, very different. I was shaping my worldview of children around something that in reality wasn't, wasn't true. What Ecclesiastes shows us is that that's what we do with life when we limit our horizon to life under the sun. If you take God out of the picture, you're living with an unrealistic expectation of the world. And then what Ecclesiastes is going to do is work through each of those little channels and parts of the maze and show us why that's the case. Wisdom comes when you understand how things actually are and you live accordingly. When you take off the rose-colored glasses and see things really, what does Ecclesiastes teach us? There is no ultimate gain for all your labor under the sun if under the sun is all there is. There is no ultimate gain if this is it. However, Ecclesiastes leaves us with this thirst for more. What's the purpose then? Why is why are we here? What is going on? And it leaves us with this kind of shape. You see, once in history, after this book was written, there was a man who stepped into the maze of life. He stepped into the maze that we all exist in, and he captivated the hearts and the minds of the world around him. People still say today, secular researchers, that he is the most influential person that has ever walked the face of the planet. His name was Jesus Christ. And he made claims that 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 lift the lid on, on the horizon of the sun to say that there is more. And he made claims that make sense of the world around us. When people come along and go, what is the gain? What's, what, what do I gain by living here under the sun? When this man Jesus stepped into the maze, he changed the world around him. Listen to what the New Testament writer Paul says about him. Philippians 3 verse 7. But everything that was a gain to me, hear that word, gain? I have considered to be a loss because of Christ. More than that, I also consider everything to be a loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, because of him, I've suffered the loss of all things and consider them filth so that I may gain Christ. He's like, with all the mazes of life, all the things that I run to, all the things that excite me, they're nothing compared to this guy who's just dropped into the maze, this one who's captivated me, this one called Jesus. What is your goal? What do you want to do with your life? What, what, what will make you satisfied and happy? Paul says this, My goal is to know him 
Jesus and the power of his resurrection. Do you hear that? Eternity. Life forever. Someone who conquers the grave has claimed to have come. He says this, My goal is to know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. The book of Ecclesiastes is a wonderful mirror to hold up to my life and to yours. It says this, Everything that we seek for when we take God out of the picture is just sandcastles in the sand. It's going to be washed away. You live, you die, nothing changes. It's meaningless. And it's going to leave all of us with a deep desire to see the one who gives meaning and hope and help us to recognize that all of us have eternity stitched into our hearts, a desire for satisfaction that lasts forever. You might be here tonight with, with that worldview that you hold yourself that there is no more than what we see or hear. There is nothing else. Like There is no God. And that's great. Love having you here. I want you to keep coming. Come and hear a man like no other man you've ever met. Explore the world from that secular point of view and, and see what he comes up with. Let it push you to the end of your reason. Use your logic and reason to say, is this really what I want? Is this really what I live for? Or you might be coming along going, no, I, I, I trust Jesus. I think there is a God, but you're walking around the maze of life just like everyone else who thinks there is no God. For all intents and purposes, as people look at your life, you're a frantic runner, trying every door, checking out every experience, trying to understand what's fun and what's good and what makes life meaningful. You need to hear the words of the one who's done it ten times better than you or I ever could. Stop. It's not where meaning is found. We might be coming along going, no, I, I do think there is a God and I trust him with my life and, and I want to serve him. But so often we get caught up, we kind of spiritualize that kind of materialistic viewpoint of the world and we say, yeah, so I've got to get as much good teaching as I possibly can. I'm going to seek after this everywhere I can and, you know, and then pride myself on my good teaching and what I know. And, or, or we can get our value out of you know, what achievements we make in Jesus and we somehow think we, we've, we've grown a big church. Do you know that... Um, my kind of self-image, my, my, my view of myself um, goes up and down uh, with the same level as church attendance. That's ridiculous. My what I'm saying is my identity is tied to how many people come to church. What's wrong with me? That's just, just as materialistic and just as gaining the... It, it, somehow that achieves something. We need to be pushed to come... And recognize life as it is. To recognize the solution is eternity. And that we need to stop building sandcastles in the sand. And we need to come and drink from the fountain that God's word will show us. That fountain called Jesus where life and satisfaction and eternity is offered. Whatever you do, don't go away from tonight going, ah, oh, this is just a crock. Come away and listen to what this teacher is saying. The wisdom's amazing. Let it take your logic to the end. 
and see our need for one who has died in our place and has offered you life forever. Let's pray. Father God, tonight we want to thank you for the wisdom of this teacher. We want to thank you for the ways in which he has been able to view the world as if you don't exist in that hypothetical reality and show us what so often we seek. Lord, we ask tonight that you would continue to correct our view of reality. We confess that so often we, we seek after things that don't satisfy. We, we run through life frantically like a rat in a maze, trying to get as much out as possible, but we miss the big picture. Father, we ask tonight that you would show us in a real way the meaninglessness of life without you. And that through that you would draw us throughout these next eight weeks to see each and every area, how they find their fullness when we come and trust the one who made the universe, who made us. Father, we pray that Jesus might be everything. That each of us here might walk out knowing that our, the only gain that matters is knowing him and being known by him. Father God, we thank you for Jesus and the hope of eternity he holds. Amen.